We've uh, been going through the book of Revelation, and I skipped ahead last week, looked at um, trumpet number six, so today we're going to step back and look at trumpet number five. No, there was no brilliant reason for that, I just skipped a week. And so now I'm back on track, and today we'll look at trumpet number five. Um, What's been happening in the book of Revelation is God is pouring out his wrath on humanity. And it starts off with uh, a set of threes. A, th- a set of seven. Three sets of seven? Seven sets of threes? Seven sets of seven? I don't know. Seven seals. Jesus is cracking open these seals, and each seal results in some sort of judgment upon the earth. Then there's seven trumpets that the angels sound, and for each trumpet blast, some sort of judgment pours out on earth. And then there's seven bowls, and for each bowl that's poured out, some sort of judgment happens on earth. We already finished the seals. We haven't yet looked at the bowls. We're in the midst of the trumpets. We're at trumpet number five. And at trumpet number five, things start to get really weird. Um, Well, let me just read to you, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Has, have any, you been stung by a scorpion? Let me see your hands. Ooh, did it hurt? Huh? I've never been stung by a scorpion. I don't ever want to be stung by a scorpion. I hear it's like getting stung by many bees all at once. Is that kind of accurate? No, thanks. So these locusts are going to torment people like a scorpion strikes a man. And in those days... Men will seek death and will not find it. They'll desire to die, and death will flee from them. Here's where it really gets freaky, when the locusts are described. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were crowns of something like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair, like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates, like the breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And they had tails like scorpions. And there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, the name Apollyon. All right, very peculiar. Real quick summary. A star falls from heaven, opens up the bottomless pit. A bizarre locust plague flies out of the pit, and instead of destroying crops, they attack and torment people. Is that not weird? And so a lot of people say, can we really take this literally? Is this symbolic? What's going on here? Well, let me share you my take on it, one piece at a time. Start off with the star. As I've told you in the past, I think the star is a fallen angel, a a demon. 
Demons are simply another name for angels that rebelled against God. I believe they would still look beautiful. Scripture says that Satan is transformed into an angel of light. So I don't think if you saw an angel and a demon standing side by side, you could pick one out over the other just by the way they look. It's how they behave that makes them different. Why do I believe this star that fell from heaven is an angel? Well, first of all, angels and demons are called stars in Scripture. Um, there's that one passage in Revelation where it says, Satan, who's depicted as a dragon, a tail takes a third of the stars from heaven and hurls them down to earth. And everybody agrees those are the, that's the fall of all the angels from heaven, a third of them anyway. This angel, this, this star that falls from the heaven, is called he on multiple occasions. He is given the keys to the bottomless pit. He opens the pit. So it's not just some generic star or meteorite. It's a person, a being. He's given the keys to the bottomless pit. All right, what's the bottomless pit? I think everybody knows. It's an obvious reference to the netherworld, probably Tartarus or one of, one of the levels of hell. Throughout Scripture, there are places that talk about hell as the abode for demons. In fact, the Bible says hell was made for the demons. God made hell as a place for the demons. It wasn't intended as a place for humans. We should not go there. But we have to choose sides. And if we choose God's side, we will never go there. But if we choose Satan's side, by not choosing God's side... We may go there. And so I think the biggest thing we have to determine on planet Earth today is where we want to spend the rest of eternity. It's funny, you know, I know people who go to school in preparation for their careers. And when they get their careers, they get a 401k in preparation for their retirement. And they start planning it all out. I'm going to get this house. I'm going to live in this place. I'm going to do this. People will plan for their future. But our lives on this planet, if you're lucky, are 80 to 100 years. And then there's forever. And very few people plan for that. So let me suggest you rearrange your order. Plan for eternity first. And after you've got that locale picked and got that all settled, then worry about the 401k and the education and all those things. Well, this place of the demons, it's kind of like a, a jail, for demons, a prison for demons. Second Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So they're in chains of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude says something very similar. The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these angels, they rebelled against God, and God created hell and threw them into hell. And they're imprisoned there. But some, for some reason, they're, they're allowed out. Some people say, no, Steve, they're not allowed out. There's some really bad ones that are not allowed out. They're always there. And the ones that aren't so bad, they get to wander the earth. Okay, whatever, I don't know. I just know that hell was made to imprison demons, and yet there are demons marching about here and there throughout history, so some of them seem to be getting out. In Luke, Jesus encounters a whole legion of demons. And listen to how that encounter concludes. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, legion, because many demons had entered into this man. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. 
the bottomless pit. So it seems to me that they were in the pit, they snuck out, and Jesus is going to send them back. Well, they begged not to be sent back, so Jesus said, okay, you can go into the pigs instead. And then went into all these pigs, and these pigs ended up jumping into the sea, the abyss, and drowned. And I don't know what happened to the demons after that. I just know that's when they invented deviled ham. Okay. So, fallen angels are imprisoned in hell, the abyss. Sometimes they're permitted out. So I think the fallen star is a fallen angel. He's given the keys to the abyss to release these locusts. Well, I think these locusts are a demon horde. Why do I believe the locusts are a demon horde? Four reasons. Now, this is just graphic, cool picture, because that's what we think of when we think of demons. But like I said, if you looked at them today, you wouldn't know the difference between a demon and an angel, in my opinion. They would both look beautiful. But I think these locust hordes are really demons. Why? First of all, they're from the pit. And I already told you the pit is hell. It's Hades. That's where they come from. I have a hard time thinking anything else lives in there other than demons. I don't think there's a bunch of grasshoppers with helmets and breastplates floating around the Hades waiting to be released. Could be, but I don't think so. Second reason I think they're demons, not only are they from the pit, but they're released by a demon, which makes sense. It's like the captain sets them free. Third reason I think they're demons is because their purpose is to torment men, not eat plants. That's your first dead giveaway. A bunch of locusts come fly. What do locusts do? They devour plants. That's all they do. Well, these locusts don't do that. So they're not obviously regular locusts. And fourthly, and most importantly, they're led by a demon. Verse 11, they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name is Apollyon. So the king of the bottomless pit, the angel over them, is a guy named Abaddon or Apollyon. Abaddon just means destruction or the destroyer. Uh, a bad Napoleon means the same thing. One comes from the Hebrew way of looking at it. The other comes at the Greek way of looking at it. So I looked up that Abaddon, the Hebrew equivalent. It's used in the Old Testament almost exclusively with the words for hell, grave, and death. So every time you see that word destruction, it's tied to hell, Hades, death. So this is kind of like that concept being brought forward into the New Testament. Apollyon. That sounds very similar to the word Apollo. Um, Apollo, one of the legends about him is he's the god of the underworld. Yes, I know Hades is the god of hell. But I'm not saying they're the same. But Apollo is the god of the passageways to the underworld. So the fact that this destroyer who's the king of the pit is called Apollyon ties, I think, to the Greek and Roman pantheon quite nicely. These demon locusts only torment those who don't have God's seal on them. So in the book of Revelation, two groups of people get sealed. They get stamped. There's a group of people that everybody knows about. They get the stamp 666, either on their head or on their hand. And it means they have willfully chosen to follow and worship the Antichrist. And they're stamped, property of the Antichrist. But it doesn't say property of the Antichrist, it says 666. But most people don't know God also stamps in the book of Revelation. He stamps his own. He seals. In fact, there's a couple chapters given over to 144,000 of them. They're sealed by God. It's his. And no, it doesn't say property of God. I don't know what it says. 
We know what the devil stamp says, but the Bible stamp doesn't say for God. It just says they're sealed. Maybe it says XP, which are the initials for Jesus Christ. Don't know. I just know that these demons, it's as if they're going to be sniffing out people with the 666 and tormenting them. Maybe even the people who haven't made their mind up yet. But the people with God's mark, they can't come near them. They can't touch them. You know, I do not want to be around during those days, but this part's going to be pretty cool. You're going to be like Superman. These demon hordes are going to be flooding over the planet of the earth, and they're like, you're they can't come near you. You're going to be little force fields around you or something. I don't know. It's going to be pretty cool to be protected by God in that way. This torment, though, that it equated to a scorpion, and I don't know why it used the scorpion. It says they got a tail like a scorpion. Um, maybe because the pain just keeps going. I heard that about scorpion stings. It's not like you get stung and the next day you feel better. It just lingers for, for months sometimes. Sometimes it just damages you. These guys can torment for five months. And it says this about the people being stung or tormented by these demon creatures. It says, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, but death will flee from them. All right, two possible meanings. Either the wooden literal meaning that people will be incapable of dying. Jump in front of a train, the train hits them, they won't die. Jump off a building, they won't die. You know, strap dynamite to their face, blow it up, they won't die. That's how some people see this because it says they will desire to die and death will flee from them. So some people think this means they can't die. I don't think that's what it means. I go with the other possible meaning. This torment is so miserable that the people who are suffering just wish they could die instead of suffering. I wish this would kill me. I wish I would die instead of suffering. Why do I think that one? Well, I've got some reasons for it. First of all is parallelism. I've taught you before about biblical parallelism or Jewish parallelism. It happens throughout the Bible. You see it time and time again. There's basically two types. When something is said, right after it, the same thing is said, but it's said in a different way. Now, sometimes that thing that's said after it is the exact same thing, but with different words. And sometimes it adds to the previous. So that's called synthetic parallelism, when it either repeats or adds. And then there's antithetic parallelism when it says just the opposite. So the Bible says this, but then on the other hand, that. So this is obvious parallelism, and it's obvious synthetic parallelism. So it's saying the same thing twice, or it's taking the one thing that it said and adding further information. Let me read it to you again. It's up on the screen. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. First line. Second line, they will desire to die and death will flee from them. Parallelism. Saying the same thing two different ways, and or adding to it. The first portion, as you see, it says, in those days men will seek death. That's added to they will desire to die. So seeking death is the same thing as desiring to die. It's in parallel. It's saying the exact same thing with different words. Down here, men will seek death and will not find it, is in parallel to death will flee from them. So, Death fleeing from them is the same thing as not finding death. Seeking death is the same thing as desiring to die. I have seen people, old, frail, in pain and dying, and most of them tell me, I want to die. 
They're tired of their suffering. They desire to die, but death flees from them. They ask me, why is God keeping me here? I'm just miserable and suffering. I tell them, I don't know, but he has a plan. Maybe his plan is to let other people care for you for a change. I don't know. I can't answer that question, but your time will come. Steve, pray that it comes soon. Okay, I will, if they know Jesus. If they don't, I'm not going to pray that that time will come soon. Job, who knew suffering well, said this, Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? A more contemporary version puts it this way. Why does God let me live when life is miserable and so bitter? I keep longing for death more than I would seek a valuable treasure. Nothing could make me happier than to be in the grave. So we have parallelism and we have the testimony of Job, somebody who longed for death but death didn't come. It wasn't that Job couldn't have killed himself or been murdered. It was he was just so miserable he thought, he thought he'd be better off dead. And was praying he'd rather die than live. But never, never did it enter his mind that he should kill himself. Because he knew that would be wrong. His life was in God's hands. And so he was talking to God about his life. God, I'm miserable. I'd rather be dead. Why am I still alive? And that's what's going to be happening in our future when the demon hordes ascend from the pit and start tormenting people. They're going to be so miserable they could wish they would die. But God will not let them die. One more testimony to this interpretation, and then I'll move on. It comes from Albert Barnes's commentary, and here's what he says. There's always a great number of sufferers who are looking forward to death as, as a relief. In cells and dungeons, on beds of pain and languishing, in scenes of poverty and want, in blighted hopes and disappointed affections, how many are there who would be glad to die and who have no hope of an end of suffering but in the grave? A few by the pistol, by the halter, by poison, or by drowning seek thus to end their woes. A large part look forward to death as a release when, if the reality were known, death would furnish no such release. For there are deeper and longer woes beyond the grave than there are this side of it. I was talking to a a rabbi this week, he's a, uh, lead, he leads a synagogue and he's in rabbinic school. And um, we were talking about euthanasia. And he asked me my opinion. He said, I've noticed in hospice that sometimes they just keep turning up the morphine until the people die. He says, it's not, it's kind of like euthanasia, but nobody says that and they just kind of wink at it. Even though it's not the law, it's happening. And I said, yeah, from my experience, it happens more often than not. He says, you know, on the one hand, we think suicide's wrong. But on the other hand, do we think it's wrong to end somebody's suffering? And I said, well, let me tell you what I believe. He said, as a follower of Jesus, I believe that people who believe in him go to heaven when they die. And that people that don't believe in him go to hell when they die. And so are we really offering a release? If we 
hasten somebody's death, what if they're not a follower of Jesus? We're not ending their suffering. We're making it worse. And I said, and our conversation went on. And I said, but you've got to understand when I say belief. I don't mean in the modern Greek sense of the term that you have this idea that Jesus exists so you're okay. Biblical belief isn't intellectual alone. And then I quoted James to him. You say you have faith. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. The kind of faith is a full faith. It's 100% all in. And then I started telling him about that book, Not a Fan, which I think he's going to get. And I said, um, see, within Christianity, there's this mindset. There's basically two camps. There's this mindset that says faith is just in your head. If you believe in Jesus, you're good to go. But there's this other camp that says, no, belief is more than that. It's a full-blown commitment to God, and it demonstrates itself in godly living and in good works. That's my camp, and that's what I teach. And I quoted some James for him and some other passages, like where, where Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? So I said, there are people who believe, but don't really believe. And somebody's laying in the deathbed. How do I know which one of them they are? So to make that decision for them, it's risky business. He said, you're so Jewish, you never answered my question. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) So what do I think about ending people's suffering? I'm all for ending their suffering. But God decides when people live and when people die. But I do understand somebody's 99 years old. They are a vegetable. They have dementia. And all they do is moan in pain all day. If I had the morphine drip, would I turn it up? Yeah, I probably would. But I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. It's not within my power. But if I'm ever asked to be on the ethics board of a hospital, I will pretty much share with them everything I just shared with you. And we'll see what God does with that sort of thing. When all is said and done, God decides who lives and when. God decides who lives and who dies. I talk to my wife about this time and again because now she's in critical care nursing. She's in uh, the ICU. And uh, I share with her my perspective. And she, she has the same perspective I do to a certain extent that we do not believe withdrawing care is the same thing as killing somebody. Turning up their morphine until they die is not the same thing as saying, okay, we're going to take them off the vent now. If, if the family says it's time to take them off the vent, you take them off the vent and say, God, now it's up to you. We did what we could. If they live, great. If they die, they're in your hands. We weren't actively involved. They're in God's hands. We tried. Let's see if we failed or not. But giving them a shot, that's another thing altogether. That's my perspective on it anyway. All right, so speaking about suffering, God is intentionally causing these people to suffer. That seems so ungodlike, doesn't it? We always talk about God is love and God is full of grace and God is full of mercy and God is full of compassion. And yet it seems like he's the one that sent the demon to open up the pit and release the, the demon's hordes. Well, there's a couple ways of looking at that. One way is simply to ascribe it to God's sovereignty. We can say everything's in God's control, but he lets wicked do wicked to fulfill his plan. He's not directly responsible for the torment. He's just allowing it to happen. Okay. But I don't like that answer. I think God's more active than that, especially in this. So why would God want or allow these people to suffer? A couple of reasons. First of all is justice. 
These people are under God's judgment. Just like the plagues that hit the Egyptians, Moses went to the people and said, listen, do what God says or these bad things will happen. And they chose not to do what God said. He proved he was God. The very first plague didn't hurt anybody. He turned the water into blood, freaked everybody out, made life inconvenient, but it didn't hurt anybody. So Moses established his creds, his credentials. I'm God's representative. Obey God or it'll get worse. I'm not going to obey God. Fine, turn up the heat. By the way, one of those plagues was locusts. So I think the plagues were punishment on the Egyptians, and it was just. Plagues on the people in the end of days are punishment on them, and it will also be just. Listen, if God released those demon hordes on ISIS right now, would you be pitying ISIS? Wouldn't you be like hastening, pushing the door wider open? <laughs> Go get them! Or if they were released upon the Nazis... How many of you saw my Facebook post about that Nazi? Oh, not enough of you. So we just have our March of Remembrance, right? And for some people, oh, this is ancient history. It's not ancient history. We had a guy who was there talking to us. Just happened a few years ago. But anyway, they arrested a Nazi from Auschwitz. Our speaker, last Saturday, might have known him. He was called the accountant of Auschwitz. And he was there as they were pouring the gas pellets into the places the people thought they were taking showers. And he testified about them screaming before they died and then throwing them into the ovens. And this guy dispassionately talked about one of the trains that emptied out. Somebody left a baby behind. So a Nazi went over, took the baby and dashed its head up against the wall and threw it on the train tracks. That's the kind of people these Nazis were. You pity their judgment from God? Now this guy, what did he say? Did he say, yeah, that was horrible. Those were dark days. We didn't know what we were doing. No, he didn't say that. Did he say, I was an animal. I have since changed. I should have rescued that baby and taken it home. He didn't say that. You know what he said? What else could we do? We could have shot it. That's what he said. He's like, what, 96 years old or something? Evil, evil. No remorse. Oh, and the story gets worse. Some Holocaust deniers went to his trial. These people who say the Holocaust never happened, it's all made up. Why did they go to his trial? So they could hear an eyewitness say it never happened and validate their case. But that's not what he said. He testified it all happened just like everybody else said it happened. And you know what the Holocaust deniers said? They said, oh, he sold out. He's not telling the truth. How do you convince somebody like that that the Holocaust happened? When the American soldiers who liberated the camps said it happened, when the people who were in the camps said it happened, Jews and Gentiles, when the Nazis who did it said it happened, and we've got pictures and videos of it happening, we have the gas chambers and the crematoria today people go to visit, and these guys say it didn't happen. What do you do with people like that? You can't do anything with people like that. There's no hope for people like that. They're beyond insane. Now take that mindset over to belief in God. They don't believe the Holocaust happened. Okay, these people don't believe God is real. There's only so far you can take them. There's only so much you can do with them. 
And that's where we're at when God pours out these demons. This is the kind of people we're dealing with. Romans 1 explains this mindset. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. They're full of murder. They're full of strife. They're full of deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They deserve everything they get. That's the first reason they get tormented. They deserve it. But God is gracious. There were two reasons the Egyptians got tormented. One was because they deserved it. The other was to testify to God's greatness that people might believe in him. And many of the Egyptians did. They came to faith in him. And then the outsiders did. In Jericho, there was a woman who heard about what happened. And she received the spies in peace. And hers was the only family spared, the destruction of Jericho. And she became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. So God poured out these plagues on Egypt as tough love. It was grace. It was way of waking them up because nothing else worked. Carrot stick, carrot stick. They wouldn't take the carrot. So they took the stick and the stick got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We're at the end of human history in the book of Revelation. They've given all the opportunities humanly, divinely possible for them to come to faith. It's like, I got to try something. What's left to try? I know. I'll put them in nonstop misery for five months. If that doesn't work, nothing will. Talk about tough love. On a slower scale, we put those we love into misery to redeem them. We do it all the time. Intervention with drug addicts. Spankings with little children. You know, nobody likes spanking their children. But when you tell them once or twice not to play with the electric outlet, and they don't take you seriously, you give them a reason not to play with the electric outlet. And the reason to a two-year-old isn't you explain to them amperage and wattage and how dangerous it is. The reason is you smack them in the butt, and they realize touching that's going to hurt their butt, so they're not going to touch it again. Same idea on a much higher scale. The rest of the wicked, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So it's almost as if the book of Revelation is lamenting the fact that no matter what God does, these people just won't repent, but he's going to keep trying and keep reaching out to them. God's judgment is often administered to bring people to repentance. We saw this with ancient Israel time and time again. God's judgment is an impetus for change. It's tough love. It's the toughest of love. They are at their very last chance to be saved. I don't want you to shout an answer out loud, but I want you to think this in your head. Why do you suppose some people wait till it gets really bad before they'll follow God? You've all seen it. I know you have. People whose marriage fell apart, they lost their job, they become homeless, they're drug addicts, they're living in the street for 20 years, and then finally they just wake up and say, this is horrible, what am I doing? I need help. Why does it take them that long? 
Why do they have to go that far? I remember talking to a, a, marriage cu- a married couple who were not at the point of desperation or divorce. They weren't there. And I said, you're at a good point because we can see the problem now before you get to the point where everybody else comes into my office. Don't, don't go to that point. You can see it now. Work on it now. Don't wait. Some people wait. Some people follow God now. Carrot people. Don't want the stick. Some people follow God now. Some people wait. And some people just won't. And that's just sad. Like those Holocaust deniers. They get to a point where there's nothing you can do with them. It becomes a, part, a point spiritually where people get to the point where there's nothing you can do with them. But I don't know if I know anybody at that place yet. I don't know if you know anybody at that place yet. So you just keep on praying. You just keep on praying. You just keep on ministering. You do everything you can to show the love of God. And if you've not yet made a decision to follow God, I don't want to badger you into it. I just want you to go home and ask yourself, why? What are you waiting for? Really, write it down. Write it down. What am I waiting for? This is why I don't follow God. And if it looks like a good reason to you, bring it to me. And we'll talk. And if it doesn't look like a good reason to you, then come, come to me. Let's baptize you. Let's pray. Lord God, these are dark days ahead for humanity. But we're in dark days right now. And I pray that you would have mercy and pity. That you'd use these men and women of God here at Book of Life Community Church to show the light of Jesus to a dark and dying world and that we might win many to him with the carrot, with the love, before you have to start swinging that stick. Lord, I know we're not all that we could be as followers of Jesus. And so I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters in here who recognize the same. I pray you would help us be all that we can be for you. That we would not live our life for things that don't matter. That we wouldn't pursue ease or wealth above your kingdom. That we would seek first the kingdom of God that you would help us to be loving and patient, forgiving, kind, gentle souls who represent Jesus well and lure people into a relationship with him by their goodness. We are not there, Lord, but we want to be. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, we will be. Bless us and keep us that we might be a blessing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.